Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be talking about If a Body Meet a Body, Season 2, Episode 18, first aired March 9th, 1986. The IMDb summary reads, What begins as a routine murder investigation leads the police to discover that a coffin contains the wrong body. It's about to go down, (laughs) y'all. Okay, Let's get into the characters, and there's a lot of them, and then right into the episode. So this is a Cabot Cove episode, so we have Sheriff Tupper and Dr. Haslett. We also have Silas Pike. Agnes Shipley, Ben Shipley, Phyllis Walters, Christy Olson, Ned Olson, Connie Vernon, Henry Vernon, Stu Bennett, and Reverend Matthews. A bunch of people. Okay. <laughs> so we open up in the vehicle bay of a funeral home, and we have Phyllis. Walters, who comes up and is speaking to the funeral home driver, I guess, Silas. She comes running up to him and is asking what's going on because she called the cemetery and they said that there were no burials today. And Silas says, no, Mr. Vernon is being cremated after the church service. So Phyllis is distraught and she runs off. The next scene, we're at the church and we see a number of people arriving. We meet Connie Vernon, who's the widow. We meet Ben Shipley and his wife, Agnes, who are customers of Henry Vernon. He is a financial advisor along with Ned Olson. And Ned is there with Connie helping her into the church. We then see Jessica and Seth arriving. And suddenly this beat down van pops up. And inside is Stu Bennett. He's the driver in a Harvard sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off of them. (laughs) Okay, the utter disrespect. And Christy Olsen, who is trying to get Stu to go in with her. But I'm like, he is clearly not dressed to go to a funeral. So leave him where he's at. She has to go because Henry Vernon was her father's business partner. And she had known him her entire life. So she had to pay respects. So she gets out of the van and Stu just drives off. And it's like... Good riddance. Anyway, the next scene, we are inside the church and Reverend Matthews is leading the funeral service. We find out that Henry had been a resident of Cabot Cove for the past 10 years, that he's a financial advisor that has handled a lot of people's finances, including the church's building fund. He then says he had a big heart and it just gave out. At this point, Phyllis busts in the church doors, okay? And she's like, 
It wasn't his heart. Henry had a heart like a bull, and I should know. And she then proceeds to make her way to the front of the church, blames Connie for having killed him for the insurance money. Connie is just like distraught, like, oh my goodness, in shock. And Amos is trying to calm her down. Like, this is not the time nor the place. And they're up at the casket. She's like, why is it a closed casket? What are, what are they trying to hide? Connie killed him, etc. So Amos is trying to like get her away from the front and perhaps to the side and calm her down. She shrugs away from him and bumps into the casket. It falls over and the body rolls out. And it is not Henry Vernon. It is some poor older gentleman who is not Henry Vernon. So everybody is in shock. There's all these gasps around the church. And Connie then proceeds to just pass the heck out because this is too much, okay? Too much. Now, I'll say this. I understand that Phyllis and Henry were having an affair, but this is all levels of inappropriate, okay? So you are going to bust into the Lord's house, okay, during this man's funeral to call his wife out and accuse her of being a murderer. That's just, okay, no, just so many levels of disrespect. Now, I say this having watched the entire episode and know how it ends, and still, this was too much, okay? It really was. She was doing the most, and then you're going to try to fight Amos in the front right next to the casket, end up bumping into the casket. Now, it works out because it turns out that Henry was not the person in the coffin uh, or casket. And this poor man would have just been cremated and listed as Henry Vernon uh, with his family not knowing what the heck happened to him. But I'm a tad bit, well, I'm more than a tad bit, disgusted at how Phyllis acted here it could have been done very differently. She could have gotten there, waited outside to confront Connie about this. She could have um, stood in front of the hearse so they couldn't take um, Henry's body, well, this gentleman's body, right, to the crematorium. You know, something that was did not involve her just exposing herself as a mistress in this service like that even if it was at the funeral home it's not just because it was a church but even if it was at the funeral home that's just so disrespectful to everybody else regardless of how you felt about Connie everybody else there was just highly disturbed by your actions and that was extremely immature and inappropriate so no just no. Anyway, the next scene, we are at Connie Vernon's house and Seth is there, Amos is there, and of course, Jessica. And Connie's saying there must have been a mix-up at the funeral home in Farnsdale. We find out that um, Henry, quote-unquote Henry, was supposedly embalmed in Farnsdale 
So Seth never got an opportunity to do a autopsy, do an autopsy. Because obviously if they had delivered the body to Seth, he would have recognized that this was not Henry immediately. So they're asking now like, okay, so how did Henry die? There's all this speculation. What actually happened? So Connie says that they were getting away for the weekend while they were driving up north. Henry said that he was not feeling well. So they stopped for the night in Farnsdale, got a hotel room. And when Connie woke up the next morning, Henry was dead. She called the clerk who called a local doctor who said that he had had a heart attack. We also find out, and I think we found this out at the funeral, that Connie is leaving town after the funeral services and everything is finished up. She tells us here that she, yes, she's leaving. In fact, she's going to San Francisco to stay with her sister out there. We also find out that there is a $200,000 life insurance policy. Now, Seth was like, I'm the one who did his, did Henry's physical for that. And Ned Olson was the beneficiary. Connie says, well, they were discussing dissolving their partnership. So Henry had changed the beneficiary from Ned to her. Amos then asked about Phyllis because she just had a whole scene in the church and like acted a fool and ended up revealing that Henry was not in the casket. So there's that. But it's a logical question. However, Jessica's like, Amos, and shakes her head. And Connie's like, no, it's a valid question because it is. Well, the thing is, it wasn't being gossipy. He wasn't asking it so that he could go back to Loretta and the, the women at the hair salon and say what happened or go to the barbershop or the newspaper or the diner to tell everybody this business. He's investigating the disappearance of Henry's body and the appearance of this John Doe. It was a valid question for the simple fact that they had all just sat through this spectacle that Phyllis had created. So Connie says that she found out about Phyllis and Henry admitted that they did have an affair, but that it was all over. And Jessica's like, well, maybe he didn't tell Phyllis that it was all over. I'm like, no, he just lied to you. (laughs) No, that's terrible, that's terrible. So the next scene, we are in the car with Amos and Jessica. They are heading back to, I believe, Jessica's house. He's going to drop her off. Amos is filling her in on, you know, what happened. He is thankful that Phyllis did cause a scene only for the fact that it prevented the wrong person from being cremated and allowing Connie to collect $200,000 for a not dead husband, perhaps. So Amos said that he called Farnsdale and they are not missing a body. So I'm assuming he called the funeral homes and whoever else may have buried people and they confirmed that they were not missing any bodies. 
Now, his theory is that the person who was in the casket, the John Doe, could have been murdered. And this is how the person was hiding the body, by switching it out with Henry's. Amos then says, you know, everyone says that you solve all my cases. I would really like to solve this by myself. So thank you for your service. Goodbye. And so Jessica's like, not a problem. I have to finish this book for the Christmas catalog. So I have enough work to do. And the fact is, I swear, like every four episodes, Jessica is like trying to finish a book. Like, <laughs> and always gets wrapped up in a murder. Like she, she's not trying to get involved. She's really not. But she is who she is. And you got to use your resources when there's a murder to be solved. Well, a presumed murder. At this point, it's just a switch up between two deceased persons. So the next scene, we are at Jessica's house. And she is typing away and trying to get this book done. And there's a knock on the door and it's Phyllis. This is clearly the same day because she's still in that suit. And she looked very well put together, except for her hair. Her hair was actually not done, but whatever. She was grieving. I'll give her that. That black suit was very well cut. So she put a scene together, but her makeup was on point, as was her suit. So she had enough time and sense to do that. Interesting. So... Phyllis is basically asking, first she's apologizing to Jessica for the spectacle at the funeral. She then is requesting Jessica to investigate what's going on. Because again, she believes that Connie killed Henry. And she turns to Jessica and she's like, don't tell me you didn't think that either. And she was like, no, not really. <laughs> So Jessica considered that perhaps Connie killed Henry. Perhaps it was the insurance money or kind of the quick, fast, in a hurry cremation. Maybe it could have been both of those or either one of them. So Jessica's like, listen, no, 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 no. Amos will do everything necessary to solve this case. Phyllis is like, everybody knows that you solve his cases. He doesn't know his hand from his hat. So please, I need you to help me. You know, I'm just some lowly waitress and you're super famous, but I really need your help. And Jessica's like, no, I'll give you my help. No, it's fine. Like, you're not just some lowly waitress. I'm curious as well. And you know, that's the only reason that she's willing to help is because she legitimately wants to know and deep down inside, not even that deep, to be honest, she knows that Amos can't do this on his own. Unfortunately, he can't. He does do a fair bit of investigation, like the whole Farnsworth and getting information from them and about what's going on up there. He does, and he does it very well. So I will give him props for that. He thought forward. He went through with gathering information so that Jessica could bring this on home. Okay. <laughs> so the next scene, we are at the funeral home and Silas is super creepy. Okay, he was creepy from jump, but he is now breaking open a shipping crate 
in which there is a casket. Now, I do not know if it's an occupied casket. I don't know how that works. I I don't. Um, Or if it's just a casket for sale or one that was ordered for a funeral. But anyway, he is being super creepy, even though he's wearing a part of a suit. Um, But my favorite line, I think I have two in this episode, but one of my favorite lines in ever, yes, in ever, (laughs) is when Seth says, Amos, one of these days you're going to break an ankle jumping to conclusions. When I tell you I use that in my regular life, I do. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure we've all jumped to a conclusion that was quite far-fetched, but oh my goodness, Seth really comes up with some of these one-liners for sure. But Seth is like, no, it was a mix-up in Farnsdale. Amos is determined to prove that this was a homicide, okay? And he's like, there's no body missing, like physical body missing in Farnsdale. This would be a perfect opportunity for the Farnsdale police to try to get rid of a murder victim, okay? (laughs) Now, that's a bit much, but... I would say perhaps a murderer trying to get the police off his scent by sending the murder victim to another town. That I could get with. That's not what happened, but okay. That I could get with more so than the actual police sending a, switching a body of a murder victim and someone who died from natural causes just so they wouldn't have to investigate. That's the most. Okay, but like I said a few minutes ago, Amos is actually doing a proper investigation about this because his theory is that John Doe is a murder victim. So what does he do? He has already had the fingerprints taken from John Doe and has them sent to the FBI. So he's already done that. He's now asking... Seth to do an autopsy so they can determine how John Doe died. And Seth thinks it's ridiculous, but then he's like, okay, fine. Okay, fine. Now, while they're having this discussion, at some point, Amos turns to Silas and was like, well, who handled the casket when it came in? And Silas was like, it was me, but I never opened it. And they're like, why? I'm like, why would you open a casket? I'm sorry, why would you open a casket if you're technically, he's not the delivery person, but you know what I mean. You're the staff person there. You're not dressing the person for the funeral. You're not doing their makeup or their hair. So why would you open the casket? To be honest, um, I guess to me, nosy? Who's really trying to confirm if this is the right person, right? He said that the paperwork was in order, so there was no reason for him to open it. And I'm guessing that they didn't have two older white men come in for funeral services. So it wasn't like, oh, let me check and make sure that this is the right person. But even if they did, he doesn't know, well, no, 
Silas knows what Henry looks like, so he would have been able to identify um, if there were two deceased persons that had to be connected with their paperwork. So yeah, I'm not suspicious about Silas not opening the casket. I really don't see why there would have been a need to. And they basically moved on after that. So they didn't put too much stock in it either. So the next scene, we're at a diner with Ned and Christy Olsen. Christy is telling him that she's concerned about Connie getting into the business now that Henry is gone. And Ned's like, listen, you know, she's moving out of town. I'm sure that she'll be willing to sell his part of the business and it'll be fine. So then the conversation turns to Christy's boyfriend, Stu, and Ned is like, why are you with that hippie blueberry picker? And Christy's like, a blueberry grower, okay? And this is just a phase. And Ned is like, yeah, no. Dropping out of Harvard Business School to grow blueberries is not a phase. Listen, Christy, listen, listen. Leave that man, okay? Because <laughs> the fact is, either you're down with this hippie lifestyle, living out of a van, not being able to make ends meet, living off the land, whatever, unless his parents are super rich and he could just go to them on occasion. But if you're out here trying to live the high life, he ain't the one. If you got together with him and you were expecting the Harvard Business School graduate who was going to be making half a million dollars a year stepping out of the school on his first day of work, then this is not the man who you're with. Okay, he changed. And I was going to say, listen, he's not going to change. This isn't a phase. But he really already changed during the pendency of your relationship And I'm sure he did not discuss this with you, this life-changing situation. You should have left him when he left Harvard Business School. Because if y'all didn't have a conversation about this and you just woke up one day and he's still in bed and you're like, don't you have class? And he's like, nah, I dropped out. I'm like, um, are you on sick leave? Are you you taking a sabbatical situation? Are you going to be, um you know, interning somewhere uh, at a Fortune 500 company, something, please, something. No, I'm going to buy a used van and start to grow blueberries. I'm telling you, I would have grabbed my stuff and left immediately and called up my financial advisor father and like, Ask him to pay for movers to immediately go to his apartment to get anything I have in there out because I will never want to see you again. So yeah, lose my number. And um, that's that on that. (laughs) You can't just drop out of Harvard Business School to grow blueberries. Well, you can. Like you definitely can. And if that's the type of life you want to live, fine. But don't trick me. Don't get into a relationship with me and then this is what you're doing? Like, no, I had a different vision of this relationship that, and this ain't it. This is not it. I was promised 
a luxurious lifestyle, not living out of this purple covered van and you and that same sleeve ripped off Harvard Business School sweatshirt. Okay, honestly, and it's all faded to no, no, girl, you should have left immediately. Anyway, so Christy leaves because Stu pulls up in that janky van of his and she runs off to to meet him. And as Ned is still sitting there eating, Ben and Agnes Shipley come in and basically they are telling him they want to withdraw their investment for Pleasant Ridge Medical Center. Ned then says, are you sure you want to take your money out? Because Jessica Fletcher just joined and now we're at our $1 million goal. And Agnes is like, no, no. I want every cent of the $100,000 that we invested as soon as the bank opens on Monday, cash in hand, sir. And Ned is like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. No problem. I got you. I got you. So the next scene, we're outside the church and Reverend Matthews comes out and he's talking to Jessica. And this reverend is very gossipy, just like his whole tone. This They're out in the open, but he is being very gossipy. And Jessica is paying him absolute dust, like pocket lint, okay? <laughs> she got two pieces of information from this and just zoned out for the rest of it and was just like, okay, thank you. God bless. Bye. I gotta go. <laughs> so the next scene, we're at Jessica's house and she, of course, is trying to finish her book. The phone rings and it's Amos and he's just updating her. The Farnsdale police don't know the John Doe. Remember, he had the fingerprints taken and he had sent the information to the FBI but he had also reached out to Farnsdale to see if this was maybe one of their usual suspects or if there had been a missing persons uh, report filed or anything like that. None of that was found. Amos then says that he is going to go over to Seth's to get an update as to the autopsy of John Doe. So the next scene, we are at Seth's office, him and Amos. And Seth says that the John Doe died of a heart attack. Now, that was the diagnosis that the real Henry got as well. So that's interesting. And we'll get to that. Um, But Amos is just crestfallen. He's like, what do you mean it was a heart attack? It wasn't a homicide? my whole theory is like gone now. Now I have to figure something else out to explain why John Doe's body was switched with Henry's body. The next scene, we're at Connie's house and it's Jessica and Amos there. And Jessica's like, listen, at this point, someone's gonna have to drive up to Farnsdale and ask a few discreet questions. And Amos is like, listen, I'm going to go ahead and do that in the morning. And 
they're chit-chatting a bit and getting ready to go. And Connie was like, listen, I hope this isn't too much, but you know, I'm all alone in this big house and I'd really appreciate if you guys could come over for dinner, like I'll cook, you know, I just need some support basically. And Amos is like, well, I know Miss Fletcher, Mrs. Fletcher has to finish her book. And Jessica's like, listen, you know what, Amos, we have to eat anyway. So yes, we would be delighted to come and have dinner with you. Now, I will say I do not find this suspicious, but everything is a clue on Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> anyway, so the next scene, we are at Phyllis's house and there's a knock on the door and it's Silas. And each scene he's in, he is creepier and creepier. So... Phyllis actually lets him in because she wants to clear things up. She sees where this is going. Silas is interested in her. And now that she is no longer with Henry because he's dead, he thinks, Silas thinks he has a chance. And so he comes in his work suit and as humbly as he knows how and basically it's like, listen, you need a man, which is not true, but okay, let's go with this. And, you know, I'm willing to step in to that position and take care of you. And Phyllis is like, listen, you're a substantial, settled, secure man, but I'm not attracted to you. And... (laughs) Silas was prepared for this, okay? He was seriously prepared for this because he's like, that's not important, okay? Stability is more important than looks. And I'm not asking you to love me, but I figure we spend more time together, we could grow to that. And Phyllis is like, no, thank you, sir. Um, Please leave. So he leaves and he's like as he's walking out the door he's like when they find Henry's body you know I'm sure you're my you're going to change your mind and he walks out now two things one I am completely creeped out by this like he came to this woman's house and she lives alone side note how is she affording that house on a waitress's budget this was definitely a different time This was a time when you could have a whole house as a single woman working as a waitress, (laughs) okay? Wow. Anyway, so he completely creeped me out in this. But also, was it just me or was this really sad for him? You know what I mean? Like, it it was sad. Like, I was like, oh my goodness, he's just out here alone and he's just looking to take care of somebody. Now, it won't be me. Don't. Mm, no. Mm, no. But <laughs> I'm saying like, I was just like, oh, that's really sad. But I'm being dramatic. Anyway, so. <laughs> but the thing that got me is that he's like, you need a man. 
I'm like, clearly she doesn't because she's maintaining that house on her waitress salary. So mm, I think she's good. Now, if you mean like, I see you out here alone now, you don't have any companionship, even though you were a mistress and girl, you could do better. Okay, Henry wasn't ugly, but girl, you could do better. You're young. You got, well, not super young, but young enough. You look good. You deserve better. But she was being very polite because what she wanted to say was not, I'm not attracted to you. She wanted to say, I'm disgusted by you, like, or creeped out by you. And I'm not going to grow out of that anytime ever. So let's not continue to do this because you're just going to get hurt because my opinion and my feelings are not going to change. So she was very polite about that. But I think also because she was alone with him in her house. So she's very vulnerable in this situation. So I don't think she had any other choice but to be polite to him and let him down as easily as possible. But I will say this one last thing. Much respect to her for nipping this in the bud because, you know, he could have been out there. He professed his love and who knows what he would have done if she had not sat him down and was like, no, sir, this is not going to happen. Please come to terms with that. I have much respect for you, but you're going to have to leave me be. I don't know what he would have done, but I am a plus to her for doing that. Now, this does not absolve her from making a scene at the funeral, but this is definitely a big plus for her character. Now, the next scene, we are in some room somewhere, and there's a person who we find out is actually Henry Vernon, who is very much alive. And he is listening to the news, which is announcing the fact that his body is missing and nobody can identify this John Doe and what's happened. He then calls someone or the phone rings. I I can't remember which, but he's telling that person that they need to talk because things have gotten out of control. This is going too far. The next scene, we are back at Jessica's house And her phone rings yet again as she is trying to finish this book. (laughs) And it's Ned. And he's asking her to increase her investment an additional $60,000. And he reveals that Amos has put in his retirement fund, the entirety of it, of $40,000. And Jessica's like, "Uh, no, I'm very comfortable with the money that I've already invested. So no sale here. Ned is like, oh, okay, you're sure, you're sure, you're sure. Okay, thank you. Okay, listen. (laughs) I know y'all are listening, but listen. One, and he did this before with telling the Shipleys about Jessica investing money. Now, I'm sure that there is no like investor investment broker privacy right, but I just feel that it is very inappropriate to mention not only 
that somebody has invested, which is like, okay, fine. Maybe that's, maybe that's nothing to get up in arms about, but the amount, how are you telling Jessica, who is very good friends with Amos, but I'm sure they don't discuss finances because they don't, you know, (laughs) and that's why they're still really good friends. But you are telling her that his retirement fund is $40,000 and that's the entirety of it. Now, in 1986, that sounds like a lot of money, I'm guessing, but that is none of Jessica's business. And I think that was extremely inappropriate. But also, what was $40,000 in today's money, right? (laughs) Well, I checked. And that would be a little over $101,000. That's the equivalent with inflation considerations. So that's a good sum of money when the cost of living is what it is there. And I'm sure he also has a pension in addition to this money that he's put aside. But my guess is that even if Jessica was considering giving additional monies once Ned specifically said that Amos put in his entire retirement fund of $40,000, Jessica's pocketbook closed, okay? And it went into the vault because you're not going to tell me about my friend's finances and think that I want to work with you. He's lucky that she didn't request her investment back because this means that if you're willing to tell me about Amos in order to persuade me to invest, then you would tell other people about me, which he did, and may even go as far as telling the specific amount that I put in. And I'm not cool with that. So he's lucky she didn't request her money back because that's what I would have done. Like, oh, you out here telling me that um, XYZ, my bestie, put in their entire retirement fund and it is $101,000 in 2021 money. Um, Yeah, no. So actually, um, not only am I not going to put in any more money, I don't like the way you do business and telling people's actual financial business So I'm going to need you to write me a check. Now, actually, no, no, no. I need a bank check. Thank you. So, (laughs) but that's just me. Anyway, so the next scene, we are at Stu's apartment or home, whatever it is. He is trying to fix the pipes. So I'm guessing he doesn't have any money or he's too proud to ask his parents for money. Or they disowned him when he dropped out of Harvard Business School. Because, okay, wait. So, oh my gosh, like, unless he was there on a full scholarship, you now have to pay your undergrad, which was probably Harvard if you got into Harvard Business School or some other equally high-ranking Ivy League school. So unless you went in on a full scholarship, You owe student loans and you are out here growing blueberries? Growing blueberries. How do you even send in a check that is $3.37 because that is the percentage of your income that you can afford to pay? I don't know. I do not know. But (laughs) 
how do you do that? Oh my goodness. I hope he at least got his money back for that semester. I hope he didn't wait till halfway through when you couldn't get a refund to drop out. That would be terrible. But he still got to pay for his undergrad student loans. And he's going to be paying, he's going to be dead. And his estate is going to have to still pay these student loans. Oh my goodness. Christy, get out. Get out. (laughs) Anyway, so Christy is trying to convince him to get back into at least the business world or use his undergraduate degree or something because she's like, you're a whiz in economics. And he's like, listen, I know I don't want to work for the man and whatever, right? And he's like, if you want a, a man like your father, then who only cares about money and doesn't care about people and all of that, then go back to him. And so she proceeds to get up and walk out. And then of course the pipe that Stu was trying to close and thought was securely closed, the water starts splashing in his face. Now, again, Christy, he is happy being poor. He is happy in this situation, okay? I'm sure he is fine hopping in that van and living out of it if necessary and going from farm to farm or blueberry patch to blueberry patch. I don't know how blueberries grow. Okay, maybe like grapes, so then vineyard to vineyard. I don't know, whatever. So either you're going to be happy with him poor and living that life or you need to leave him. Those are your two options. Those are your two options. You're young enough to start over again, okay? (laughs) Start over again with somebody else. Maybe go back to a Harvard Business School um, mixer and look for an alumni. So someone who is already, already a graduate. So you don't have to worry about them dropping out and then owing hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. And, and be happy like that. He doesn't have to necessarily be in finance. He can be in some other area of business. And do that because that's what you want. Girl, get what you want. You're young and beautiful. Do it. Leave this berry picker to himself and his dirty, broke down van. Anyway, he'll find somebody who is extremely happy living that lifestyle because there is a top for every pot. Okay, let him find who his pot top is, and you go find your pot, okay? That's just better for everybody. Now, the next scene, we are back at Connie's house, right? And it's Jessica, Amos, and Connie. And this is the dinner that Connie invited Jessica and Amos to. So they've just finished, and Jessica's like, oh, I hate to eat and run, but you know, my book, Got to get it finished. I didn't get as much done as I thought I would. So I have got to go. So Amos is going to drop her off because as we know, Jessica does not drive. But Connie is like, oh no, Amos, you can stay, right? Just a little bit longer. It's late. It's dark. My husband is dead and missing, please. So Amos is like, actually, there's a nine o'clock movie um, starring John Wayne that I need to get home to watch. 
And she's like, whatever the name of it was, something wagon. Sorry, I missed it. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, you can watch it here. I'm a fan of John Wayne as well. So Jessica's like, listen, I can walk home. We're in Cabot Cove proper. I can walk home. I need the air anyway. And to take the walk because dinner was so good and I ate so much. So don't even worry about it. And Jessica leaves. Now, while Jessica is on the street walking, well, on the sidewalk, of course, because it's Jessica, she follows the rules. She sees Stu's berry picking van driving erratically. So now this is about nine o'clock and we can't tell what direction it is going with relation to any of the places that we've been or any of the places that we're going. So it's just an observation right now. The next scene, we are back at Connie's house and Amos is knocked out on the couch, okay? The movie is watching him and Connie is watching him too. So Amos, watch your back. I don't know. I don't know if you should be eating any more of her food because maybe she slipped a little something in it and that's why you're sleeping real good right now. And he wakes up. He's like, oh, oh, I didn't realize I fell asleep. And he was in that good sleep. Like when when you're like folded into yourself and you're all like perfectly temperatured and you find the right spot and your neck isn't like crooked. So you're not going to wake up with a crick in your neck. He was real comfortable. He didn't even take his suit jacket off. (laughs) He had his blazer on. So he was keeping it proper, but that man was knocked out. You know, he probably had a a little bit of drool. (laughs) That is the best sleep, but that's the worst once you wake up because now you're cold and whatever. Anyway, so (laughs) he's all shocked and looking around like, where am I? It's like, oh, did I doze off? Yeah, you went to whole sleep. Like you went to bed. And so he's like, oh my goodness, look, it's after 11. I need to get on my way. And Connie's like, listen, um, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if you could, you know, stop by from time to time to say hello. You know, I, if that's not asking too much, And so Amos is like, oh, yeah, no, not a problem, whatever. Okay, isn't it a fact that she is supposed to be leaving for San Francisco to stay with her sister any day now? She has not started to pack up the house. I didn't see a bag, a box, a moving van receipt, nothing. So are you actually planning to go to San Francisco to look to stay with your sister for a while or are you just gonna throw some things in your passport in a bag and flee i'm suspicious now so the next scene we are at jessica's and amos comes to visit and jessica's like listen i have four days to finish this book i don't know how i'm going to do it it's just so much left but i have to have to have to do it i don't have time for you, but I'm going to make time because you're a good friend. (laughs) And so Amos is like, oh, I was going to invite you to take a ride up to Farnsdale with me. And she's like, not happening. So Amos is like, okay, I just want to offer. I'm going to head on out. 
and the phone rings. So Jessica goes to pick it up. Amos is kind of hanging by the door. I'm thinking maybe one, because people will call Jessica's house to see if he's there or Seth's office to see if he's there or apparently Connie Vernon's house to see if he's there. Um, I feel like there's a deputy sheriff just like on the move who like radios back to <laughs> to uh, the 911 to the operator to tell her or him where Amos is so that they can call that person's house to talk to him. I, I promise you there's somebody keeping eyes on the sheriff at all times when he is on duty so they can always find out where he is so they can call that person's house phone to talk to him. But nine times out of 10, he's probably at Jessica's and that other one out of 10 times he's at Seth's. So, well, Seth's office slash house. So it's a good chance that that's probably the first ones they call. But Jessica stops him. It's like, oh, it's for you. And the call is from, it may be from the sheriff's office or it may be from Phyllis herself. I think it's from Phyllis herself saying that she found Henry Vernon dead in her house. Now, the next scene, we are at Phyllis's house and it is the, the real Henry Vernon who is now dead, right? We saw him alive listening to the radio and then making that cryptic call. And now we see him and he is officially dead. Phyllis tells them that, listen, I got off at 7 a.m. after working a 12-hour shift as a waitress. I came home and I found him dead. So I immediately called the police and now we're here. I did not know he was alive. I did not plan to meet him anywhere. I I don't know. I am shocked and disturbed myself because I thought he was dead. And then if he's dead here, he couldn't have been dead before. So Seth is there and Amos is like, well, how long has he been dead? And Seth says, "Mm, it looks like about 10 to 12 hours. So Jessica's like, well, that means counting back, he died between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. last night. So the next question is, well, how did he die? And Seth says it was from a blow from a cylindrical object to the back of the head, such as a crowbar, a wrench, a heavy cane, and Jessica says, or a fire poker, to which Amos then walks over towards the fireplace. She has a place with a fireplace, a whole house with a fireplace, and she is a waitress. Now, I need to be making what she's making back in 1986 because I am flabbergasted. Anyway, back to the story. So (laughs) Amos recovers a fireplace poker that has a large amount of blood on the actual pole portion of it. And it was just laying on the floor out in the open. So there's a few issues with this, but let me finish the scene and then we'll go back. So Jessica notices purple stains on Henry's pants and Seth notices dirt as well. 
But as Seth is looking at the body, he's like, there's, there's nowhere near as much blood as there should be here. So that indicates that the body was moved, which makes it less likely that Phyllis actually murdered him and more likely that she was framed. So Jessica brings up the fact that if Henry Vernon is dead right now and he was murdered 10 to 12 hours ago, dot, 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 and Amos catches that throw and says, Connie Vernon has a lot of explaining to do. And that's what I mean. Like sometimes Amos is on most of the time he's off, but he he was kind of on on the, in this episode. But just taking a step back to the several issues I have in uh, this scene real quick. <laughs> one, and this is the major one, okay? So we're just going to do that one and move on. In what world is a fire poker in the same category as a crowbar? a wrench, or a heavy cane, or a pipe. Can, can someone explain that to me? Can someone explain how those objects are in the same category as that tiny, thin, metal fire poker? Please, please explain. Um, and I will attend that TED Talk because... They're not in the same category and there's no way you can convince me that if Seth is talking about this man getting hit in the back of the head with a crowbar, that an alternative would be a fire poker. And honestly and truly, I think that he said yes because Jessica said it and he did not want to embarrass her. Because as an audience member, I'm like, that is not even close. Okay, it's not like he said a baseball bat, that would be in that category, a large cylindrical thing that once hitting someone hard enough in the back of the head could kill them. Now, we did have trial by error where the wife killed her husband, her abusive husband, by hitting him in the back of the head with a fire poker. Yeah, in real life, that's not. A possibility. In the Murder, She Wrote universe, it is. However, when you say a crowbar, a pipe, a wrench, a heavy cane, a fire poker is not what's missing in that. That is, there is something different. And that different thing is the fire poker. So I'm sorry, Jessica was way off with that. Number two, I know I said I was only going to do one, but this one is equally important. Why in the entire world would Phyllis call the police when the murder weapon, alleged murder weapon, was sitting out in the open? Okay, if she had actually murdered him, she would have had plenty of time to toss the murder weapon Okay, or even just wipe it off and put it back into the um, the cage or whatever you call it with the rest of the fireplace equipment. 
or just gotten rid of it. Who's who's checking to see if you got a poker in there or not? You could just come up with some excuse um, for why you don't have one if they happen to notice. But why would she just leave it out in the open, covered in blood? Okay, it does not make sense, especially when she is the one who called the police. What makes sense in this situation is that she didn't even notice it because she's not the one who used it. And she was so freaked out by the fact that Henry, who was supposed to have died days ago, actually only died hours ago. And he's now laying on her living room floor. That makes sense that she is so shocked and focused on this. And thankfully, she thought to call the police because she could have just passed out and just it could have been terrible. But she calls the police. She doesn't even clean up the fire poker because she doesn't notice it because she didn't use it. So I'm we're this is to move the plot along, but I'm hoping that Jessica did not truly believe this. Because it is clear to me as an outsider that it does not make sense that Phyllis did this. It makes more sense that this is a setup. So the next scene, they're now at Connie's house because Connie has to explain this because she said she woke up and her husband was dead next to her in the bed. Okay, so you would know your husband is dead and you take him to get embalmed, like you had a death certificate that said he had been embalmed, like he dead dead. You can't come back from that. So Connie explains what really happened, that they were driving upstate, and this is in Maine. So they were driving upstate in Maine. They got a flat tire. Henry got out to try to change it, but he's never been handy. A hitchhiker came up and, you know, offered help, which Henry was happy to have. After the tire was changed, they gave the hitchhiker a ride. While they were driving, the hitchhiker had a heart attack in the back seat. And instead of taking them, taking him to the hospital or getting him some sort of assistance or at least turning him over to the police so they can notify his family, no. Henry decides to fake his own death. And how he was planning to do that? Listen here. So they rented a hotel room. He sent Connie in and he stayed in the car with um, the John Doe. Henry told Connie to go in, rent the room, and tell the clerk that your husband is sick or not feeling well. So she does that. They then go into the hotel room. Once it gets dark, Henry and Connie go back out to the car where the hitchhiker is dead in the back seat. They move him into the room. And then in the morning, Connie calls the clerk who then calls a local doctor. They determine, this is the doctor that is, determines that the person identified as Henry Vernon laying in the bed died overnight from a heart attack. So 
everything is written up in the name of Henry Vernon. The plan was after the funeral service, the John Doe hitchhiker was going to be cremated. Connie was going to get the $200,000 in insurance money. In the interim, Henry was going to go ahead to San Francisco. Once everything was cleared up in Cabot Cove, Connie was then going to go to San Francisco under the guise that she was going to stay with her sister. So a whole elaborate lie. And Connie's like, I did not talk to Henry last night. I didn't know what was going on, whatever, whatever. Okay. Then the phone rings. Connie picks it up. It is for who? Amos. And it's actually Ned calling for Amos. And he is telling him that all of the investment money for Pheasant Ridge Medical Center is gone, missing, disappeared every last cent. So of course, Amos is just like, um, what? So the next scene is a town hall meeting of all the investors at the church And it's interesting because the reverend is actually sitting in the audience, like in the third row, and Ned is at the front on the dais or at the pulpit, and Amos is up there as well. So of course, Amos is trying to keep the peace, but he's also feeling some type of way because the entirety of his retirement fund is missing now. So Ned explains that they had the money in a bank in Portland and he contacted the bank and that he was told that the money was gone, that it had been withdrawn four days ago by Henry. And so everyone's up in arms. They're like, where's my money? I, you know, people are threatening to sue. People are like, Amos, you're not going to get reelected. You better find this money. Um, they start pointing fingers The reverend tries to calm down Ben Shipley because clearly that money was gone before. Maybe that's how he knew. That's why he was contacting the bank to get that $100,000 for the Shipleys. But he, the reverend's trying to calm down Ben Shipley. And he says, listen, no, the church's money was in there too. So it's not, you're not in this alone. And he says, and I quote, Stealing from the church is like stealing from the good Lord above. You don't want that on your conscience, do you, Ned? And I'm like, why are they going after Ned? Ned didn't steal the money. Henry stole the money. But of course, he's the one left holding the bag. I don't know if he was the one who convinced all the people or if Henry convinced some people and Ned was convincing other people Was this a Ponzi scheme? Well, no, it wouldn't have been a Ponzi scheme because no one was getting interest payments. Was this a scam, a scandal, or a scheme? I don't know if it actually was, but Henry's the one who stole that money and now Henry is dead. So I don't know what y'all want me to do. He surely didn't tell me he was taking that money, you know, because I would have surely left town before his real body was found. So Christy, Ned's daughter, stands up And it's like, 
Um, I think we need to be talking to Connie Vernon. She can't tell us that she didn't know that her husband stole a whole million dollars. Okay, uh, what you got to say? So now everybody's turning their head, which is correct. And Connie's like, listen, Henry went visited the bank while they were away, but she had no idea what he was doing. So I'm like, ma'am, ma'am, he took that money out in cash, okay? In cash. Um, and we'll find out later that it was in cash and it was not a bank check. It was cold, hard, greenback cash, okay? Now you, you're going to tell me, okay, and every other person watching this, as well as the characters in that church that you did not see your husband come out of the bank with a suitcase full of cash. You ain't see that. You ain't seen none of that. You had no idea that he just went in to the bank and then came out with a suitcase full of cash. Just a suitcase. You shouldn't be coming out the bank with a suitcase. You shouldn't be going into the bank with a suitcase. Did he go in with the suitcase and you thought he was robbing the bank? And you're like, listen, I know he was going to take this million dollars out. I thought he was just robbing the bank. What did you think? You can't tell anybody with any type of sense that $1 million just went past you and you had no idea he had taken it out. That why he was going to this bank in Portland or anything. Now, I'm not saying that she should have connected this bank to his company, right? I'm not saying that she may have been completely oblivious to where the accounts were held, what level of percentage of the partnership he had, assets, any of that. I'm not saying she needed to know all of that, but she has two eyes that function very well. And she can't tell me that she didn't see him come out with $1 million in cash. That's not $1,000, which you could get 10 hundreds. But like, who's carrying hundreds if you have to? But 10 hundreds and put it in your pocket. No, it's $1 million. And you know he was going to try to get like smaller bills because you can't be out here with crisp $100 bills to the tune of $1 million and people not be suspicious. Okay, you can't take that through the airport. Not only do they have the scanners, but they have dogs too that can apparently sniff out money. Now, I don't know if that's just international, but he would have, maybe he could have made it to California um, without that being detected and maybe walk across and then drive to Mexico and walk across the border. Maybe he could have done that. But anyway, I'm all off course. So coming back, do this. But um, at this point, Amos is like, Jessica, you have got to find this money. You have to figure this out. And she's like, I don't even know where to start. He's like, I don't know where you need to start either, but you got to do it. You're the only person who can do this. 100% facts. 100% facts. As they're now trying to figure out what the next moves are, Stu Bennett busts through the church doors and is like, Sheriff, what type of town is this? Somebody stole my van. Commercial, right? (laughs) 
He is still wearing that gross sleeveless sweatshirt. Okay. Honestly, you know. Okay. Now he doesn't look filthy. He he does not look filthy, but you know he smells terrible. Okay. <laughs> just like dried sweat. Just just musk gross. Uh Oh, I, I've upset myself. So we're going to just move on. <laughs> so the next scene, we're at the sheriff's office and Jessica's there. Amos is there. Stu is there and Christy's there. Jessica concludes that Henry's body was probably moved in Stu's blueberry van. And that would account for the purple stains on his pants and the dirt as well. Now, Stu is like, listen, I wasn't involved in this. I didn't even know it was missing until this morning. And so Amos was like, well, where were the keys? Because he thought Christy had taken the van. And she's like, I took the bike. Like, I'm not taking that nasty van. (laughs) Anyway, and so Amos is like, where were the keys? And Stu was like, in the ignition? (laughs) As he's saying it, you see his soul leave his body as he realizes that this is 100% his fault. (laughs) Just as an aside, please don't do these three things. One, leave your vehicle running in front of a store and you're just going to run in because there is a very high chance that at some point your car will be stolen and you will have to explain to your insurance company that you in fact left the keys in the ignition and the engine running while you were outside the car. And even worse, if there is a person, that being a child or an animal, that being your pet, who gets stolen with the car. So don't do it. Two, Don't leave your vehicle unlocked, okay? Do not do that. Don't think, oh, my neighborhood is so safe. You know, that's where people go. They go to the, the criminals go to safe neighborhoods because those are the people who leave their cars unlocked, okay? And on the other side, if you live in a bad neighborhood, don't leave it unlocked, assuming that the criminals are gonna go to a nice area and they'll leave yours alone. (laughs) Okay, don't do that. And three, this kind of goes with one as well. Do not leave your children and or pets in your vehicle while you, the driver, are not in there. Okay, just point blank period. Just, Just don't do those three things and life will be amazing. I promise you. No guarantees. But... No, seriously, don't do any of those three things because they're all terrible. So the next scene, we are back at Phyllis's house because we need to get some more information from her. So she admits that she did take a break while she was working because now the timeline is eight between eight and 10. She was like, oh, I didn't take a... They, I don't think they questioned her the first time once they got that number, but now they're asking. And Phyllis is like, well, actually I did take a break around 8.30, I think she said it was. 
She had gotten a call from Henry, which she didn't actually speak with Henry. Her manager picked up the phone and said a person identifying themselves as Henry, um, Henry Vernon, said to meet him at the lake at whatever time. She said she went to the lake, but he did not show up. So they leave it at that because Jessica had a tiny bit of an epiphany. So the next scene, we are at Seth's house slash office and they, Jessica has some idea. Now, I don't think they explain what it is, but they're looking for John Doe's body. They open the door. Well, Seth opens the door to his office portion where he has the examination room and the body is missing. So John Doe, who has been deceased for a number of days at this point, his body is missing. So Amos says, first, the missing man's dead. Now the dead man is missing. So he is just like frustrated and confused and upset, all of which are valid at this very moment. So Jessica suggests that they look around Phyllis's house to see if they can find Stu's van. They end up finding the van on Ben and Agnes Shipley's property. The next scene where they're at the van, it is burnt out. Stu does not believe in insurance. I'm like, oh my goodness, Christy, please leave. Do not get pregnant by this man. Leave immediately, okay, before it's too late. He says he does not believe in insurance. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That, oh, he, oh, terrible. Anyway, so they also find, this being Jessica, finds a suitcase or a briefcase in the burnt out van. It's burnt and there appears to be cash in it and the cash is burnt. And Amos actually gets a little bit choked up because he's like, my retirement fund And he truly believes, like, this is it. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to be working until I die, you know. But then, not for nothing, then Cabot Cove or the state of Maine will pay for your funeral. So there's that. But, like, you want to live your life. You want to have a great time. And you were so close to that in Sticks and Stones when... Harry was supposed to take over as sheriff. Remember the real estate agent, you know, Gomez Adams, John Aston, you know, whatever you want to call him. Um, his real name is John Aston, the actor. But remember in that episode, he was finally getting a taste of retirement, but then had to put the uniform back on because, um, spoiler, Harry was the murderer. So he could no longer be sheriff because he was the murderer. So Amos had to put the badge back on, get the gun back, get back in his uniform and keep the peace in Cabot Cove. So, you know, he's just watching his life flash before his eyes thinking like, I was so close to retirement. If I would have just stayed retired then, 
I would have my $40,000. <laughs> it's going to be okay. So don't feel bad for him for too long. It's going to be okay. So as they're standing around, Jessica walks to the front of the van and she points out to Amos how odd that pile, that human-shaped pile of dirt looked. So of course they dig it up and it is John Doe. And they also notice that he has the purplish stains on the bottom of his pants. Jessica is also looking around and she is directed to the cabin. She's like, what's that over there? And Ben Shipley is like, or I think he tells Amos this, but Jessica's standing right there. Says, oh, that's my hideaway from... Agnes. I was like, you look like you need one. And so Jessica goes down to it. Now this is elaborate. Okay. It's not just like a man cave or whatnot. It is literally a two-story barn back there that is fully kitted out. It's a second home. It is not, it is not a regular cabin unless, you know, if you watch um, Living Alaska, it's one of those cabins, not like with no electricity or whatnot, but when they have like the log cabin living, that type of situation where it's like a whole additional house that is just on this large property. So he wasn't roughing it at all, but he's like, I haven't been there in months. I'm like, which is good, I guess. That means that you've been getting along with your wife. So yay for you guys. But... Jessica's looking around. There's an old Chinese food container. Not super old, but it's been there for a few days. And she found something else. I don't remember what the other... Oh, an operating phone, a working phone. So she surmises that this is where Henry was hanging out while he was supposedly dead. And I believe there's a message or something... Because she's wondering who he called. I forget why they think that, but he had a phone, so he probably called someone and it was probably the person who ended up killing him. The next scene, we're at the sheriff's office and it's Jessica, Connie, and Amos. And Jessica's like, listen, Phyllis did not kill Henry. And Connie's like, what makes you think that? She was jealous because he wasn't going to leave me. And so she murdered him. And Jessica's like, yeah, no. For one, there was not enough blood at Phyllis's house. Correct. Two, there were blueberry stains and dirt on Henry's pants. So it appears that Henry went to Seth's, well, Henry stole Stu's van first that had the blueberry remnants all over it. He then drove that van to Seth's office, stole the John Doe's body through the open window, okay? Because honestly, they're not thinking... I don't know. I'm guessing Seth has his um, medications and narcotics locked up. But you shouldn't just have a window open when they could get access to your office. They could just deadlift the filing cabinet and and steal your um, prescription drugs. Like, that seems irresponsible. Anyway, 
And Seth is super responsible. So that's why it's very unusual that he just left that whole window open next. Well, I guess the body was dead and it wasn't refrigerated. So maybe it was for um, the smell. But still, that, that still, that's not that's not OK. Jessica then says, after stealing John Doe's body to cover up the fact that everything was going to pot and the fact that John Doe was not Henry and the plan um, could no longer go forward as it was. And that John Doe was the only proof, I guess, that Henry was not in fact dead or that this was a setup. Jessica then says, whoever he then met with murdered him and then moved his body, Henry's body, from wherever he was murdered using Stu's van that Henry had conveniently stolen for them and drove him to Phyllis's house brought him into Phyllis's house, set up the scene, then drove the van to the Shipley's property and set it on fire. Not knowing, probably not knowing, that John Doe was buried right in front of it. So Connie's like, you're really just going the whole nine yards here. Like your imagination is wild. And Jessica's like, maybe I'm off, but I don't think I am. You know, I think there is a way to prove it that Henry was not murdered in Phyllis's house. There was a missing crystal from the face of Henry's watch. And she then turns to Amos and is like, listen, you need to go over that truck, the van, the stolen van, with a fine-tooth comb and see if you can find the crystal or any broken glass pieces of it. And that would prove that Henry's body was transported there. So the next scene, we are at Connie's house and she is under the porch and in a crawl area down like squatting down looking around on the ground and Jessica's like is this what you're looking for and holds up a watch crystal face and Connie's like oh what are you talking about like I'm just randomly under here it's fine it's my house I could do whatever I want right and so Jessica's like yeah no you were in on this whole plot and plan with Henry and it makes sense that you would be his co-conspirator, his dutiful wife. And on the night of his murder, since you're the one who did it, what had happened was he, in fact, stole Stu's van, then drove to Seth's, got John Doe's body, buried John Doe's body, contacted, came around to the Vernon household and waited out back for you. Once you got alerted that he was back there, Amos was already probably asleep, having the TV watch him. And you just slipped into the kitchen, out the back, had a conversation, 
with Henry, who was probably unraveling and having cold feet and was probably thinking about bolting and not um, going along with the plan. As Henry was walking away, you grabbed a length of pipe and hit him on the back of the head, killing him. You then pulled him under the porch so he would be concealed and you went back in to finish watching the movie with Amos acting as if you had never left. Once Amos left, you then, being Connie, went out under the porch, pulled Henry out, loaded him into Stu's van, drove him over to Phyllis's, took his body out of the van, brought him into Phyllis's house, set up the scene, took the van down to the Shipley property, set that sucker on fire, and walked a half a mile or a mile back to your home. Connie's like, a length of pipe? Like, all this is ridiculous, but a length of pipe? And Jessica's like, yeah, you see that strip of dead grass there? That's where it was laying. Side note, why was there just a large metal pipe randomly in the grass at their house? And it looks like their lawn had been cut at some point. You know, it wasn't so overgrown that it's like, oh, that thing was sitting there for three and a half years and they didn't, and it just sat there because no one mowed the lawn. I'm like, how are you mowing the lawn? And <laughs> But this huge pipe just randomly out there wasn't on the steps. It was catacornered to something, a whole mess. I'm like, that, ma'am, <laughs> your house maintenance, for y'all to, for him to have conned people out of a million dollars, y'all should have had a much better situation. Don't just have random pipes just on your lawn like that for years, like causing the grass to turn yellow. So anyway, um, after seeing that, Jessica then says, you know, you made one mistake. It was a slip of the tongue. You said that Phyllis had hit Henry in the back of the head with a fire poker. And the fact is, Amos never said anything about how Henry died or what killed Henry, what was used to kill Henry. So there's no way that you would have known that unless you were the one who framed Phyllis by setting that fire poker up with the blood on it to be found. At this point, Connie was like, oh, Jessica, you're very bright and you're exactly right. But there's one thing that you're wrong about. I never got around to throwing the pipe away. And she then pulls it out of the flower bed. She still has her left hand in her pocket. So this is real gangster. And she's holding this thick piece of pipe, nowhere near as thin as the fire poker, but like the straight up, like maybe a little bit smaller uh, width wise, than a baseball bat. Like this is a large piece of pipe. I'm like, what was that from? Like, It looks like plumbing. Like why is there a plumbing pipe just randomly on your grass for years? Anyway, so she's holding it and she is really 
about to hit Jessica in the head. Like she takes a step forward and pulls her arm back. And at this point, Seth and one of the deputy sheriffs come running out of her house. I'm like, this is why you lock your doors. The police got into her house, walked through it, and were at the back door waiting for her to confess and try to kill Jessica. <laughs> lock your house doors. Like, I shouldn't have to tell you this. I shouldn't have to tell you this. Anyway, so Connie is then placed under arrest and the deputy takes her to the vehicle. While she's with the deputy, Amos is talking to Jessica and was like, okay, I get all of this except for the watch crystal thing. Like, I don't recall seeing his watch missing a a crystal face. And Jessica's like, yeah, no, because it wasn't. This is one from Frank's watches that would always fall off. Like, it's not, it's a prop. It's not evidence. So... (laughs) Yo, Jessica be scheming people. Like, she really be scheming people. (laughs) A blank sheet of paper, um, a watch crystal from one of her husband's old watches, just anything. But she solved it. You know, Amos did some good legwork. He made some good calls. He got some good information. But as per usual, Jessica knocked it out of the park. So he pitched her a softball and she knocked it out of the park as she should. So we end we end with this gathering. Jessica has now finished her book, I'm guessing, and of course has made pie because of course she would. And she has... Amos and Seth over to her house. She then starts to explain why Henry would have come up with the idea of faking his own death. It was not for the insurance money per se, that $200,000. It was to cut off Henry's trail regarding the embezzlement. Because remember, he stole the million dollars. Now he stole that million dollars. It's unclear if he stole it before the hitchhiker came into their lives or after he had the faking his death uh, scheme in motion, right? I don't know because if he had stolen it beforehand, this was just luck that they came upon this hitchhiker who happened to have a heart attack And who knows if he actually just kind of had a heart attack or if they kind of induced it or something. I can't trust anything. But if Seth says this man died from a heart attack, he died from a heart attack. But we don't know if Henry had a plan and some poison to make it look like a heart attack. Okay, we're getting real into this. (laughs) Was this a setup from the beginning or did... This hitchhiker unfortunately passed away. Henry think, okay, I can fake my own death. And since I'm faking my own death, I might as well steal that million dollars. They're not going to look for a dead man. So I don't know. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, whether the money was stolen and they just lucked into the ability to fake Henry's death 
Or did they luck into faking Henry's death and then he decides to steal this money? We will never know. Amos is like, but what about the burnt money? Okay, I don't care about anything. What about my money? And so Jessica is like, it was only a few thousand dollars that were burned. The rest were in a safe in a locker in Farnsdale. And so I don't know if it was Amos or Seth, one of the two asked like, well, did Henry really call Phyllis and tell her to meet him? And Jessica's like, no, it was probably Connie who called disguising her voice and in a loud diner late at night, well, it was like eight o'clock or something like this, seven or whatever, during dinner service, you know, it could have been anybody who just said that their name was Henry. And the fact is, Connie has a raspy voice, so she might have been able to pull that off. Two, I'm sure that the manager or cook or whoever he was wasn't paying too much attention, just got the facts, wasn't analyzing how this voice sounded. And that was the whole point of it, right? So now Connie is going to prison. Phyllis is living her best life. Hopefully she moves out of that town because I don't trust Silas at all. I feel bad for him, but he's still a creeper. Ned will also need to move out of town because there's no way that he's going to get any clients after this debacle, even though he was not the one who embezzled the money. Still, your tactics are going to be looked at. People are going to be suspicious about you. Were you also in on it? And he just got to the money before you got to it. So he's definitely going to have to move out of town and start somewhere fresh and new. He should take Christy with him so that she can get away from Stu because he's terrible. And you know what? That's that on that. Another case closed by special investigator Jessica Beatrice Fletcher. (laughs) So a pretty decent episode. Definitely one that I would watch again. So next week, we will be talking about Christopher Bundy died on a Sunday, right? (laughs) It's supposed to rhyme, but it's Christopher Bundy died on a Sunday. Close enough. Um, I don't remember whether I like this episode or not, so we'll find out together. Until then... You can meet me over on Patreon at the Fletcher Files Pod on Patreon for all of the amazing additional content over there. And you can find me on Instagram, the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram. I also have a Facebook page, the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook. Do people still go on Facebook? Well, I do. So whatever. I'm over there. Otherwise, I will see you next Sunday at 5 p.m. anywhere you listen to podcast for Christopher Bundy died on a Sunday. (laughs) Until then, have an amazing week. Bye.